different causes, different beliefs about things that cause breast cancer. Um, I know I've heard everything from wearing a bra causes breast cancer, certain things in your diet. Uh, what do you hear about causes? Are there any things that people tend to attribute to breast cancer risk that don't have any correlation to actually causing breast cancer? Does wearing a bra cause, <laughs> cause breast cancer? Yeah, there's like I said, there's lots of stuff out there and different things that get passed down through families, word of mouth, you know, kind of um, urban legends, if you will. But um, have, wearing a bra certainly does not cause breast cancer. Um, the things that we think, you know, add to risk would be, you know, really heavy alcohol consumption, smoking, um, you know, being obese, things that we kind of know attribute to a lot of different diseases and a lot of different types of cancers. Um, of course, if you have a genetic uh, predisposition, like a particular um, gene or something like that, that puts you at a much higher risk. But for average risk folks, it's really just those kind of lifestyle things um, and not necessarily, you know, you having been, you know, wearing a certain type of bra or eating a certain type of cheese or, you know, something, you know, kind of arbitrary in that way. If you were going to say cheese was a problem, I was going to have, I was going to have a, a moment. Um, no, I want to... <laughs> Ooh, uh, you know your audience. Yeah. Uh, there is a question in the chat and I want to encourage people to keep engaging in the chat because we can see it. Uh, so I want to uh, get that question answered right away. Our question in the chat is, I have dense breasts, but haven't been able to get an MRI yet. Are ultrasounds good for looking at a suspected area that we're watching? Yeah, so oftentimes we use, especially for patients with dense breasts, we use both mammogram and ultrasound to help us get a better picture. Um, so the mammogram may not be able to see through the densities as well, but when paired with ultrasound, it helps us better um, identify those areas of concern. So um, that's why we don't really use MRI as routine screening because we know when we combine mammograms and ultrasound, we still do a pretty good job of identifying things that are problematic. So, and I, and I want to take it back a step just in case people aren't familiar with the difference between, um, you know, breasts and density. Can, can I tell on my own if I have dense breasts or is that something a physician needs to tell me? Uh, is that something you can determine? Anyone can determine or is that a diagnosis? Is that a, what is that? Um, it's not really a formal diagnosis. Oftentimes patients who like younger women tend to have denser breasts just because of the way that the tissue is set up. Um, so patients will come and say, you know, my breasts have always been kind of firm or they've always been a little bit bumpy or things like that. Um, and we often attribute that to dense breasts, but they probably don't actually hear the term attached to themselves until maybe they've gotten a mammogram or they've gotten an ultrasound because it really is sort of a radiologic finding, things that the radiologists see to say, oh, you know, the tissue, the, the tissue is dense based on these factors. So what is the process? I think it's, it's really scary to think about uh, being diagnosed with breast cancer. I think uh, that is something you, uh, you know, encounter in your day-to-day -day work is, is patients living with this diagnosis. What is the process? What do people go through after they get that really scary uh, diagnosis? Yeah, I think after diagnosis can be kind of a whirlwind for patients, right? They're eager to kind of understand what happens next. The folks that are taking care of them are eager to get the ball rolling so that, you know, we're not losing any time. But essentially, once a patient has 
um, I'll even take a step back. Let's say you're just presenting with a mask. You feel something abnormal. You go to your doctor. You'll get sort of worked up. And that means the imaging. So you'll get a mammogram, probably an ultrasound, and ultimately probably a biopsy. And that's really how we get the tissue to make your actual diagnosis that says, okay, yes, you have cancer. At that point, you'll see um, usually a surgeon first. Um, it varies depending on you know where you are, but usually you'll see a surgeon first. And we talk with you about what your diagnosis means, what, your, what type of cancer you have. And we try to lay out for you kind of what the next steps are, whether that is going to surgery first, whether that is saying, you know, you should meet with a medical oncologist because maybe chemotherapy first will be best for you. Maybe, and, you know, and then letting you know, you'll also meet with a radiation oncologist because radiation may be a part of your treatment plan. It really is um, just kind of taking it step by step. And I always try to just explain to my patients like, okay, here's where we are. Here's where we're going. Here are the things in between to try to keep everything in order because it really is a lot. And how do you, I mean, you started to say, you know, how you do it and how you navigate it, but that's, that's, a, you're seeing people on some of the worst days of their life, I imagine. How do you as a physician um, provide that care and support? What's, what's the approach that you take? Yeah, I try to be really patient. Um, and understand that even though I do this every day and I talk about this every day, that the person who I'm interacting with is hearing many of these words for the first time and may not know what any of them mean um, and may not have a point of reference, either from a friend or a family member who has been through it, and that people are just outright terrified, to be honest. And um, even those folks who come with a lot of knowledge who, you know, I've been on the internet, I know this is what I have, I know these are my treatment options they're still looking for guidance um, and they still wanna be heard. And so I think it's really important to kind of ask patients, you know, what do you understand about what's going on with you and what's happening with you right now and what gaps can I fill? That, that sounds like a very compassionate approach. Um, it, sounds, it sounds like just the support that patients need. I'm going to turn to the chat. I've got a list of cool questions, but I do want people taking advantage of this awesome opportunity. Uh, there is a participant who wants to know what are the advantages to breastfeeding and breast health? So we think that breastfeeding can help lower your risk of breast cancer overall. Um, and not necessarily kind of in a vacuum, but when we think about it in combination with, you know, maintaining a healthy weight, when we look at family history, when we look at, um, we use a couple of different things like, you know, when you had your first menstrual period, how many babies did you have when you had your first baby? All of those things are, um, pieces of information that we can put into various risk models to help us understand, okay, how much risk are you, are you at for developing breast cancer? So I hesitate to say that, you know, breastfeeding is the end all be all. Ultimately, we want your baby to be fed and healthy, but if you can breastfeed, um, we certainly think that you should, and it is one of the things that can help lower your risk. There's a, there's a term that I don't know. So I, I assume you know it. I'm, I'm eager to learn what this is. Um, one of the audience members asked, would you please discuss thermography? I've been hearing a lot about that versus mammogram. I'm not familiar with the term at all. Are you familiar with it? To be completely honest, I'm not. Um, I'm using my context clues and I'm, I'm okay. guessing it has something to do with maybe a heat map or something like that. But um, I have to be honest and say, I'm not familiar with it. Um, and I don't believe it's something that we do here, um, but maybe it's you know some something new coming down the pike, but I'm not personally familiar with it. Sure. And if that audience member would like to provide a little more context in the chat, but that's a new one. That's one I'll be looking up uh, when, when we're done chatting here. Um, so I want to, I want to turn to a different uh, a line of questions um, 
and, and talk about um, the healthcare setting. I want to talk about what we what we tend to do really well and what possibly physicians, researchers, healthcare professionals can do. Uh, what more can we be doing to improve breast cancer outcomes? Are we are we doing everything perfect, or is there room to improve? Yeah. Oh, I think there's always room to improve. Um, I think that you know, when we think about breast cancer in the world as a whole, I think there's been so much um, good moves made in terms of research dollars and, and things that are, you know, happening that are developing new treatments and making those treatments available to patients. But I think in the day-to-day, um, we still have a lot of work to do. I think there are patients who still face a lot of systemic barriers to getting the care that they need um, and being able to do so you know, fairly easily. And I, I mean, I use easy, easy is a relative term for sure, but, um, you know, it's a lot easier to participate in your care plan if you don't have to, you know, go through an obstacle course first to get there. So I think some of the things that, you know, we can continue to fo- focus on are kind of hospital and systemic factors that, you know, can be barriers for patients, whether that's trying to group appointments or trying to provide transportation or providing um, new patient coordinators or navigation to help patients really go through this process with a sense of education and a sense of um, ownership in their care plan and not that they just like kind of going along, not really understanding what's happening to them because it can be very overwhelming. So I think we're doing a lot of good things, but for sure we have room to improve. Yeah, I I can't help but think, you know, there are those of us who have huge support networks and those of us who can get access to really high quality care. And then there's those of us who can't for whatever reason. Do you think that we are doing, um, can we do more in clinical settings or in research settings to, to help identify those, all of those barriers for people and advocate for change? Or are there examples of groups who are doing it really well um, to help make sure that we're identifying and overcoming obstacles to care? Yeah, I think one of the things that we talk about the most is like access, right? Do patients have access to adequate screening? And so that's been one of the big pushes through a lot of organizations, including ours, to provide um, screening mammograms to folks in the community. We partner with community organizations, sororities, et cetera, to bring the mammograms to the patients rather than the patients having to come to the hospital. And so I think it's like things like those that help close that gap a little bit. And then in terms of, um, what was the other thing you asked me about? Um, are there exemplar? Are there, are there places who are doing it really well? Who, who are, you know, is there equity in breast cancer access, treatment access somewhere? Um, I don't know of anyone who's, who's got it perfect. Yeah. I don't know of anywhere that's got it perfect, but I think, um, creating some of that equity has to do with a lot of personnel, right? There's a lot of people on the ground, folks who are making clinic appointments, folks who are calling patients to follow up, folks who are navigating um, in addition to just the doctors, right? So you see the doctor for half an hour, 45 minutes, and you leave inundated with all this information. And then you're like, oh, but then what? (laughs) You know, and having some folks along the way that can kind of uh, patient advocates, um, people who have been through things that you've been through, all of those things, um, I think, help create that equity that we're looking for. Do we have patient advocates at uh, Braidard MCW? So we do have patient advocates. We also have new patient coordinators, um, which help patients kind of make sure they've got all the things they need before they come to their appointment. So they fill out a, you know, an intake form beforehand. If they perhaps got their workup somewhere else, they make sure we have all the images and all that kind of stuff, which can really be labor intensive for patients. 
and difficult to navigate. So that takes kind of one extra layer of work off of it for them. Um, and then I know there are also various survivors and survivorship groups um, through here that patients are able to get involved in, which I think helps the process as well. Wonderful. I um, am curious. So we started with, okay, you know, internally in hospital and research settings, what can we be doing? Are there things in community settings that can be done to improve uh, breast cancer outcomes? If a community is feeling really empowered to make change, um, are there things that they should start by doing um, efforts that they should participate in? How can community members do more? Yeah, I think community members can do more by um, using their, um, their trust and using their power and word of mouth to let folks know their own personal experiences with this um, and to encourage people and educate people that, you know, screening is a good thing um, to help build trust in our healthcare system um, that, you know, we have your best interest at heart. We want to take care of you. We look forward to taking care of you. And I think many of those community networks, whether it's churches or friend groups or what have you, you know, that conversation with someone you know that says, yeah, I've been to Freighter and MCW and, and I did this, that, and the other, and I went through, got my mammogram and it was easy and it was this and that goes such a long way. Um, even if I'm a physician and I say like, you should get screened, I probably carry less weight, you know, than, than that community friend that already has that trust built in. So I would say encourage each other to get screened, uh, be advocates for one another and say, hey, if you're afraid to go alone, I'll go with you. Um, and I think that using that community is really going to help us a lot. Wonderful. I, I love that. I love it because it is scary. It's scary. I mean, going, going to the doctor for a, a regular checkup is scary, let alone something like this. So, so I think that that network of support, both with, you know, community health workers and patient advocates and then social support. I mean, that's, that's kind of the theme that I'm, I'm seeing is that we can do more um, if, if we're building strong support networks um, for people uh, to improve breast cancer outcomes. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to segue a little bit because I am so impressed with your career and the things that you've accomplished. And uh, I want to know where you're going. What's, what's the goal? What is the, what is the, the, the 10 year, 15 year, where is your career headed uh, in this field? Yeah, I, um, well, I mean, I first and foremost really love taking care of patients. I think that's what gets a lot of us surgeons, doctors um, into medicine to begin with, but um, I think more importantly for me in the big picture is being able to impact change um, through research, through advocacy, through building community. Um, I've only been here a short period of time, but I've met some people who are very, very passionate about breast cancer care in the community um, and are really out here doing the work. Like I'm wildly impressed. And so I hope that I can only be, you know, uh, in addition to those things and to really help get involved to be able to take care of patients in the hospital, but also to be able to understand why people make the decisions that they make and, and how that informs our research and how we then translate our research back to the bedside to say, okay, we found this out, we know this works, we know this doesn't work, and now we're gonna implement change based on those things. And sometimes it feels like a monumentous task, but I'm encouraged, um, particularly being here because there are so many people and so many resources all working toward the same goal. And so that makes it feel really tangible. And I'm excited to see what happens. We are very excited to have you. Um, I, I made no, I made no, uh, uh, I didn't even try to hide my excitement when I <laughs> greeted you for the first time. 
Uh, but I did share, and I hope that uh, the, the Milwaukee community, Southeastern Wisconsin community members who are listening uh, do join me in welcoming you um, and, and being so excited that you're here uh, on our campus and within our community. Um, I think you will be so inspired by all of the assets that are in the area and all the opportunities to accomplish all the things that you talked about. There's there's um, so many wonderful assets here. So welcome. There's the formal, I, I should have started with that, that welcome to our community. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah. you. So fortunate to have you and we hope you, we hope you stay for a long time. Um, I want to, to just kind of ask a big picture question. Um, so if money were no object, uh, we, we didn't have to worry about resources, anything is possible, what would be the first things that you would do to improve breast cancer risk reduction, detection, treatment, survivorship? Um, where, where would you roll up your sleeves and, and really get, get working? Yeah, that's like making my eyes twinkle. Money is no right? object. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I think some of the things that come to mind initially for me is, is trying to make the process for patients easier. And when I say the process, I don't just mean like diagnosis, right? That's one part of it. But let's say now you've you've gone through your surgery and now you're getting radiation and you have to come to radiation every day for a week or every day for two weeks or however long. Um, that can be such a, you know, such a burden to A, find someone to drive you or to say, hey, I have to take off work for this week or to say, I need someone else, you know, here. That contribute to all these other factors. And so my big thoughts are around making things like that easier. So if that means we have, you know, a fleet of buses who go to various areas and pick up patients and say, okay, you're on the Tuesday, Thursday plan. So we're picking you up Tuesday, Thursday, and that eliminates that piece of it. Or to have some sort of, you know, financial incentive or financial assistance for patients. So many patients face financial barriers and, and toxicity and getting their cancer treatment. And so you're already fighting for your life, but now you're worried because you don't know if you can pay your bills. Um, so if money's no object, I'm, I'm handing it out left and right. Um, additionally, like having more, like we talked about kind of boots on the ground in the hospital in terms of uh, more patient navigators, more um, patient advocates, because there's always a limited supply of those things, right? That we, are, we can only do so much of what we have, but I would beef all those things up to just be able to spread the wealth a little bit more. So those are the things that I think about. Of course, you know, I'm building a huge lab. I'm getting all the cool toys and stuff, but the things that are most important to me, I think, and what I hear patients talking about more often are just like, you know, it's just, it's hard to park. Everybody gets to park for free. You know what I mean? Like off the top, like that's one less thing. So thinking about things like that, if I, if I had all the money to give, I would just be giving it away. I, I love it. And I think I share that. I find it mortifying that when someone shares their story about their journey, that there's so often a discussion of having to advocate to yourself for yourself to an employer or having to battle an insurance issue. And it's just like, whoa, that should not be your focus. Your focus should not be bus routes and bus schedules. Your focus should be getting access to the very best care. So I'm with you. Let's, let's get the checks and hands on that one. Um, absolutely with you. Uh, I want to turn back to uh, the chat. Uh, there is uh, a comment here that says, I was diagnosed with invasive lobular carcinoma in uh, August of 2021. I have read from different resources that since ILC is so difficult to see on mammograms, that MRI or ultrasound should be used for further surveillance imaging. What are your thoughts? So yeah, lobular cancer or LCIS, as she was describing it, excuse me, 
for invasive lobular cancer can be what we call mammographically occult. So that means on a regular mammogram, we can't see it. So we certainly do use ultrasound, we use MRI and all the things at our disposal to try to make sure that we can see those things. Now, if you've undergone surgery already and, and your, your cancer is removed, then you don't necessarily need to have MRIs going forward. Just because you've had a lobular cancer once doesn't mean that you'll have a lobular cancer again. So in some ways, after you have your surgery and your cancer is removed, the clock is reset, so to speak. And so you would go back to getting mammographic imaging. However, your treatment team is going to keep in mind like, hey, we know that she had a lobular cancer one time. And so they're going to have a really low threshold if you know something comes back on your mammogram that doesn't look quite right, or you feel a mass or something like that, a low threshold to really investigate that further. But no, you don't necessarily need routine MRI screening just because you've had a lobular cancer in the past. Wonderful. And to that person, um, wishing you the very best on your um, treatment treatment journey. Um, all right, shifting shifting back, I want to know um, who are your heroes in breast cancer care, research, general community? Who who are you um, looking up to uh, that's improving breast cancer outcomes? Yeah, I feel really um, really blessed. I've had so many amazing like mentors and people who. You know, I've learned about through research and through just being in this field. And so there's so many to name. But um, when I think about it, I think about like the person who encouraged me to even go into breast surgery. And her name is Monet Bowling. She works in Indiana. Um, and to me, I was just like so impressed with her um, because she was a breast surgeon. She was a black woman. She was, you know, providing excellent care for her patients. So in my mind, she's definitely one of my heroes. Um, when I think about the research sphere, um, you know, there's, so, like I said, so many people, um, but Lisa Newman, she works in New York, um, Kelly Hunt, um, you know, Suzanne Klimberg, like I'm saying all these names, these are people who have either innovated in, in surgical technologies or um, have done research where, you know, it's really changed the game, like really changed the way we treat patients and it's gone truly from research to our clinical practice. So, and then in the community, um, you know, especially here, like I said, I've met a few different people, the Sisters Network, you know, this YWCA collaborative, these are things that I really hadn't heard of before I got here. Um, and there are so many different groups. So like I said, it's hard to name them all, but I'm really constantly in awe at how um, people keep up with breast cancer, um, how it's changing, surgical innovation, research, and then again, all the people involved in the community who are really on the ground, like, fighting every day for this um, and making sure that people are getting the access that they need um, and providing those resources. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot with trying to name every, every, that, that could, <laughs> who did I forget? Who did I forget? I know. If um, I didn't say your name, I, I still heart you. No, absolutely. Um, but, but I think again, the kind of the point that, that is emerging for me as we keep talking is just these networks, these groups of people, these immense uh, I, I want to say village, like these villages of people who support patients, who support those of us who do research, those of us who provide clinical care and do research. Um, but yeah, that, that it's not just one or two of us in the field by ourselves, but, but really strong communities that are helping to improve outcomes is, that's my impression. <laughs> no, it, it, you're exactly right. And I, I love the concept of the village because breast cancer care in and of itself is a village. Like I cannot treat breast cancer in a vacuum by myself. Like, yes, I'm a surgeon, but I need my medical oncologist. I need my radiation oncologist. I need all the support staff that allow patients to have a well-rounded treatment. Like 
you just can't do it by yourself. So that village has to be there. Um, well, I want, we talked about screening. We talked about being a village. We talked about support. So I'm, I'm, you know, there's everybody listening, uh, is probably, can probably think of somebody, a family member, a loved one, um, who has breasts and male or female, you know, we, we, all genders, we can get breast cancer. How do you broach this topic? If you, if you want to ask somebody you care about, are you up to date on your screening? Is that invasive? Is that, you know, breaching privacy? How do you, how do you talk to that person or those people who matter to you? Uh, any recommendations for having a conversation about screening with the people we care about the most? Yeah, I think this is so important because I think people do sometimes think, oh, well, that's not my business. You know, you assume, oh, they know they're supposed to be getting a mammogram or they know that this or that, but they may not. And so I would encourage folks to, you know, you know your family member better than anyone else, right? So you kind of know what kind of person they are, how they react to certain things, what approaches work best for them. Um, but I would really encourage you to bring it up. For example, um, I have a million cousins, like literally a million. And so in our family group chat, I'm always like, okay, I know y'all are over 40. Have you gotten your mammogram? And if not, why not? And if you're confused or have a question, let me know. And I realize folks are going to say, well, you're a doctor. I know that, but you can do the same thing. And if it's easier in a, in a text format, that's fine. Or if you, you know, everybody has that one family member who's a little more outspoken than everyone else, get them, you know, recruit them and say, hey, I want to make sure everybody's doing what they need to do. Like, can you ask auntie so-and-so or, or have you talked to your mom? Is she getting screened? You know, you know, we don't have room or time for delayed diagnosis because we're afraid to have the conversation. It's too important. It's too important. And um, if they get mad at you, they'll be okay. They'll get over it. Does Especially, anyone get mad at you? Do you, have you gotten in trouble? They don't get mad at me. They're just kind of like, oh, here she goes, you know, <laughs> like here she comes again. And I don't care. And I persist <laughs> because it's too important. And hopefully they'll, they'll see that really what you're doing is coming from a place of love. So yes, ask. It's not intrusive. If they don't like it, they can say no or not answer you, but you've done your part by asking. I like to, I like to poke fun at it a little when I get the complaints from the family of just, oh, it must be so hard that I love you so much and that I want to keep you around. You know, that must exactly. be really, you should tell your friends how hard it is for you that you're so loved. Yeah. Um, I, there's a question in the chat that goes along uh, with, with this, this line of questions. So I want to get to it and uh, ask, how do you encourage a family member that's hesitant to get a mammogram because of radiation exposure? Oh, um, yeah, I would let them know that the amount of radiation exposure is actually pretty low. Um, and it's hard to quantify. I know if you say low, well, how low is low? Um, but it, it's not, um, it's no more than if you were to get like a chest x-ray or some other, you know, x-ray. In the time that you're actually under the x-ray machine isn't really that long. So I would let them know that the amount of radiation exposure that they're getting is minimal. Um, it is safe. The amount of rigor and, and, and checkpoints and this or that that hospitals have to have to even do imaging is crazy. Um, and so if it wasn't safe for you, I promise you they would not allow it. So I'm just encouraged them to say it's very minimal. You know, invite them to come with you when you get your mammogram so they can see the process uh, and hopefully build some trust from there. 
Yeah. And I appreciate that, that question very much. So thank you for that participant. I've, I've heard that as well. I've heard people say, well, don't the mammograms themselves, you know, can't that cause uh, breast cancer? So, so having that reassurance that it's low, it, a low exposure to radiation is so important. Are there other common, uh, you know, you said you, you get in the group chat, you, you uh, get, get people uh, talking and you said, uh, I believe you said, um, you ask, if not, why not? Uh, are there other common reasons that your family members might put forward uh, about why they're not getting uh, screened? Yeah. Some people feel like, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. There's nothing wrong with me. Like, I don't feel bad. Like, why would I go to the doctor? Um, and so this is not only a plug for screening a mammogram, but for seeing your family physician, you don't only have to go to the doctor when you feel bad, you know, you can just get regular maintenance. You don't only take your car to the shop when it's falling apart. You go get an oil change from time to time, make sure things are running appropriately. And so I would encourage us to do the same with ourselves, you know, just because you're young and healthy doesn't mean you don't need to be screened or checked out. The other one that I've heard um, fairly often is that, you know, if you do have cancer and you go to surgery for cancer, that when you have surgery for cancer, that we're cutting directly into the tumor and then we're spraying cancer and tumor all about. And this one in particularly, I like to kind of debunk because if I'm doing my job as your surgeon, I don't see your cancer. I don't physically see it. I don't cut directly through it. And honestly, even if I did, it's still not showering, you know, cancer to all over your body, but um, it's really not a thing where we are physically looking at your tumor, um, open, cut through the middle or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, that's, that's news to me. I don't know what it's like. I've never seen, I've never, maybe I can shadow you someday. I've never yeah, actually yeah, seen, I've true. never seen this. No, um, I want to give a quick, uh, there's five minutes left of our conversation. So if anybody is in the chat with your fingers over the keyboard, wondering if your question is, is, is good enough for the, the, this forum, I'm encouraging you get in there. We've got a few more minutes to go. Um, what I want to go back to though, um, is cause I'm, you know, I'm coming at, uh, everyone from Puerto Rico from the SACNIS conference, which is about including, uh, more or increasing the representation of underrepresented populations in medicine. And you said something earlier about having a mentor who, uh, is a black woman. Can you comment at all about representation in medicine? And do you feel comfortable? I, I care about it cause that's why I'm here uh, right now. But um, why is it important that our uh, physician and research workforces uh, represent all the communities that they serve? Yeah, I think um, having, you know, kind of concordant mentors helps in many ways because it sounds kind of cliche, but, you know, if you, if you see it, you can believe it. I saw a woman who looked like me and was like, okay, I can do that, you know, and it kind of um, made it very tangible and very real. And I think that it's important for our workforce to reflect the population that we serve. So if only 2% of, you know, surgeons are African-American, but the population is 12 or 13% African-American, then you can kind of see where we haven't really um, made balance. So, I mean, I think that's something that's super important. And I think it's even more important that we focus on, you know, recruiting physicians of diverse backgrounds, but also then making sure that that inclusivity piece is really important and making sure that there's support and there's a network um, in order for those, those folks to really thrive and feel included um, in the whole system. So I definitely think all that stuff is important. I feel very, very grateful. I'm very cognizant of the fact that there's no way that I get to where I am without standing on the shoulders of those that come before me. 
um, and who have paved ways for me and sponsored me and mentored me. And so it's very important to me that I do the same. And so every chance I get, you know, I'm at high school or I'm doing this or doing that to, to be the person that somebody sees and says, hey, she looks like me and I can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I mean, okay. All right. All right. How do you find time? Uh, so you're doing outreach, you are doing research, you're building a thriving research program. You are a wonderful physician to your patients. So how are you doing this? <laughs> That's a lot. Well, you know, I will say that um, residency trains you to like uh, be good at time management. And so then when you get to be uh, an attending or, you know, a, a staff physician, you're almost kind of like, oh, wait, I, I have a little time and let me start carving out these little blocks of time for all the things that I want to do. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of how I approach it. For sure, I don't get to do all the things I want to do, but um, you know, I prioritize what's important to me. And, and it's very evident that good care and community is uh, so very important to you. Um, you are new-ish. I forget, when did you come to Milwaukee's? Uh, when was your arrival? I moved to Milwaukee in August, so I am very new. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you your favorite things about Milwaukee, but but there is an important question in the chat, so we'll come back to it if we have time, because okay. uh, I want I want to hear where you've been and haven't been yet. Uh, but uh, this 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 question is important, and I'm really glad um, that that someone was brave enough to put it in the chat. Uh, this person wrote: uh, Young black women are being diagnosed with late state late stage and aggressive cancers. Does the ambiguity of breast cancer risk messaging contribute to the lack of early screening opportunities that are provided through policy? I think so. I think um, we hear sort of blanket statement ideas about risk, um, but I think it's important to note, and I appreciate you bringing this up in this question, that there are some subsets of the population who are going to be at higher risk for different times. So. Um, for example, before when they were saying, oh, you can get your mammogram at 45, a lot of us as physicians were saying, well, no, because, you know, Black women in particular, they need to get their mammograms at 40 because they present earlier, they present with more aggressive disease, and it really is about the biology of the tumors, which don't get me down a rabbit hole talking about the biology, but I agree with you. I think that sometimes there, there is some mixed messaging because the messaging is for the majority right? Um, and we don't always all fit into um, that group. And so I think you bring up a very important point. And I think it's even more important for um, young Black women to sort of arm themselves and advocate for themselves and ask your physician, you know, when am I supposed to get screened? Do you think it's important for me to get screened earlier? My mom had breast cancer. My aunt had breast cancer. If this is something that you're concerned about, by all means, please bring it up with your physicians. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't go down a rabbit hole talking to you about cheese curds with a question like that in the chat. No, but, no, no, I, feel, I understand. Yeah. So and but we are so, so grateful to have you, your expertise, your passion uh, in in, you know, at Freighter and MCW. So excited to see the great things that um, happen here in the community in partnership with you. Um, I want to thank you for joining us today. And I know we had a, a couple little technical glitches with connections. Thank you for rolling with that. Um, um, and, and we really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this important topic. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I was so nervous and I'm glad that it turned out so well. I was nervous too. <laughs> um, if we didn't get to your questions or if you uh, really, if you didn't have, uh, if you're still thinking, sometimes you got to think, or if you watch this later, 
um, please feel free to drop an email to conversations at mcw.edu. And I hope you all join us next month for a virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. Thank you.